Thanks for joining us today on a special episode of the Jesus Famous Podcast with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Today we have a special guest in the studio sharing their story about how Jesus has changed their life. Join us as we discuss stories and discover how Jesus is famous in the testimonies of those around us. All right, Dad, I think one of the most interesting things that probably a lot of people don't know about you is that you actually like the smell of skunk. It's an odd thing. I can't explain it, but it is a rarity. I know that. What is the deal with that? I've never been able to understand I don't know. this. I don't know. I mean, most people are trying to avoid roadkill. I'm looking for it. I mean, you've heard about, you've heard about people with COVID, right? Who yep. they, afterwards, they can't taste right or smell right. You yeah. know, maybe, maybe you had COVID as a child. It, it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Dad, I'm really looking forward to talking with you uh, today. Partly because I think, you know, it, it's just amazing what God has done here on the Monterey Peninsula through Calvary Monterey or yeah. Calvary Chapel Monterey Bay or Calvary Chapel <laughs> of the Monterey Peninsula. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, from 1978 all the way to our present day. And of course, as a church, we're looking forward to having 40 plus more years of God's grace and fruitfulness mm-hmm. here in this community, should the Lord tarry. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited because I think for a lot of people in our church, they kind of don't know like the origin story of our church. And the origin story to me has a lot to do with the DNA of our church today. Mm -hmm. We're not like a lot of those churches who are completely disconnected from their foundational years and then kind of made like a decision at some point to go seeker sensitive or something like that and just radically change Mm -hmm. uh, doctrines or emphases or things like that. So I'm excited to talk to you so that people who don't know can know. And then also maybe people who do know can reminisce a little bit Mm -hmm. and kind of thank the Lord for some of the things he did in the past. But Mm -hmm. for those who don't, you know, know you, um, it'd be great if you could share just your story of how you came to know Jesus and what that was like and how you got saved. Yeah. I never get tired of telling that story. So I was raised as a Catholic, Catholic family, Southern California, and grew up not really probably hearing the gospel. I don't know if I did or not. And then when I was a junior in high school, uh, some of my friends were starting to come to, to, to school with Bibles and having Bible studies like at lunchtime. And I'm thinking, these guys aren't, I'm the religious guy around here. These guys aren't that, but what's, what's the scoop? They were all going to a place called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And, and at that point, that church was not a large church. It was growing like crazy, but it wasn't large. So I went out to check it out, mostly out of curiosity, but to check out what my friends were into. And I did, and it was it blew me away. And for that night, for the first time, as far as I know, I heard the gospel. Wow. That I could know that I had eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ, who died on purpose for my sins and rose from the dead and is alive today. That whole package of thoughts had never entered my soul before. But it did that night through the teaching of Lonnie Frisbee, who was a young hippie evangelist, and Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. So I said yes. And then um, a couple years later, I got radically filled with the Holy Spirit and called into ministry. But uh, that's the story. And it was a transformation out of darkness into light. 
like so many of us have. I was born again. And I didn't even know born again was a possibility. Wow. Yeah. Now tell me about that moment when you were uh, called to the ministry filled with the Spirit. Because I love that part of your story that, if I remember it right, you were looking for some mentorship and looking for someone to kind of point the way for you. And the Lord led you to a little home Bible study, as far as I remember it. Yeah, that was a little later. But but what happened was um, I came to the end of myself. I was flailing around, not really living the Christian life. Uh, You wouldn't identify me as a Christian during those two and a half years or so. And I came to the end of myself and prayed a prayer with a friend of mine who had been a Christian for all of five months, which at that time was an old Christian. (laughs) And uh, the prayer I prayed was, Lord, I'm afraid to make a commitment to you because I've tried to to do this. I've tried to make a commitment to you and, and be good, but I fail every single time. I'll last a day or two. But if you'll give me the willingness and the power to follow you, I'll follow you the rest of my life. Mm. Boom. That's when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wow. And that was, it was that next, next Friday. That was a Sunday, August 5th, 1973. And that next Friday, I had a dream in which the Lord called me into ministry, wow. which I can remember as vividly now <clears throat> excuse me, as when it happened. Mm. And uh, so from there, joined a commune. A Christian commune in Boise, Idaho. That was the thing to do. The thing to do, yeah. We were going to go win win the Pacific Northwest of Jesus, you know, all of three weeks old in the Lord. And uh, so the commune was a great experience because there was nothing to do but to go to work and then come home or evangelize on the streets and read your Bible. I needed that so big time in my life to get grounded in the Bible I devoured the Bible. I was only in the commune for about four months, but I devoured the Bible probably twice. Mm. I mean, it was voracious, my appetite for the word. And then things happened, so I I left the commune experience and came back to Southern California. And I had tasted communal fellowship, biblical fellowship, and I could never go back. I could never not have that in my life again. Mm. So I was looking around, uh, in, in Orange County in Southern California and especially connected to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa where it started for me and um, a group was forming and I got to be part of the ground ground level of that group being formed and what what started as a, as a home Bible study became an important powerful vehicle of the Lord during the Jesus movement. It was a revival condition going on in Orange County at that time. And I was in the middle of it uh, with this group. Wow. And it was there that, you know, uh, after a while, uh, you know, I, I developed a heart for people, God's people. And I developed uh, a heart to tell people what I was learning. And, you know, long story short, I, I discovered somehow that I had the gift of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I eventually led that group and pastored that group for a couple years. And then I realized, you know, I can't stay here in Orange County. There's too, there are too many others that are doing this much better than I could do it. I need to go someplace where it's not happening. And that was uh, what opened the door to come up to the Monterey Peninsula. Yeah. Now, when you talk about this revival atmosphere, I want to ask you about that real quickly because you're 
using terms and saying things that make it real clear. It was a revival atmosphere, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a dream that you had, a a commune that you (laughs) went and lived in. Some of these things to maybe people who are listening for the first time or are newer Christians now, they might, that sounds a little cultish, you know, (laughs) what what was happening? And then you say home fellowship or home Bible study. So what are we talking, you know, seven, eight, people gathering <laughs> we're together. Talking, we're talking 40 to 100 people. Yeah. We had a midweek prayer meeting. We would pray for an hour, Nate, for the prayer meeting. And wow. then we'd have the prayer meeting. Wow. There was a lot of worship and tremendous amount of intercessory prayer. Yeah. And that was Wednesday. And then Saturday night, it was more Bible study oriented, but it was the same thing, praying for an hour for the Bible study. People would come. They were just packing the place out every yeah. week, weekend, and in, in the in the prayer meeting was packed out, yeah. and that was where I learned that side of being a Christian. You know, it was very very powerful, mm. and it was a revival condition. A revival classic definition is when that which has already got life has gone into a slump and gets revived again. Revival, mm-hmm. reviva, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and so it's really believers or believers who were acting or living as believers in the past who they they get their Christianity on again and and they're starting to to live seriously and that's what that's what that was Orange Orange County California which is where it was the a lot of the epicenter of the Jesus movement was a revival for some. And it was brand new for others. Mm-hmm. For me, when I went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa that night in November of 1969, I had never been in a Protestant church before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was brand new for me. Mm-hmm. But for others, it was actually a revival. A lot of dead Christianity was coming to life. Yeah. So if I could pause on that for a second before we talk about you coming to Monterey yeah. to, in the attempt to plant a church. You know, the, the idea of revival, um, you, at the point that we're recording this for everybody, uh, we're the day after we started our Nehemiah series, and yeah. you're in town, and you got to hear that teaching. I did. And I'm framing it as renewal, God renewing his people. And I intentionally used that word instead of the word revival, because I think revival needs some explaining at it times. Does. You it know? does. Whereas renewal maybe is something that we can relate to a little bit better. But same idea, same yeah. concept. Right. So what were some of the um, ingredients that, looking back, you know, is it just a sovereign move of God, you know, disconnected from the ingredients that were there in culture and society at the time? Or uh, were there elements that contributed to uh, that revival atmosphere and do you see any crossover to our modern time that might be the stirring of the spirit to do a renewing work today right well it was born out of the 60s in the 60s it was the petri dish for everything we're experiencing today it was rebellion against authority it was throwing off the um the predictable the cultural expectations. It was looking for brand new paradigms in every area, uh, culturally, religiously, spiritually, uh, economically. So the hippies were born during that era. The music changed. The, The way people dress changed. All of the norms were thrown aside. And it was just, it was brand new and fresh. But in the middle of all that, 
like in the hippie movement, for example, they wanted love, but what they had ended up hurting them. Wow. Because there was a lot of uh, free sex and there were drugs and there was addictions and all of those kinds of things. So the Jesus movement was born, born out of that. There was a, a real emptiness. Now, the difference between then and now is that there was a, a spiritual undergirding in the entire nation that the people that lived in the, in the nation understood that there was such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong, something called truth and something called a lie. And this was held from shore to shore. Mm. Uh, and so when the gospel was preached, people understood that they were sinners and that they weren't meeting up to or living up to that standard of right and wrong that they knew to be real. Their, their consciences were, were more activated. And so the gospel was preached and it made sense. And plus there was the message of love of Jesus, the love of Jesus, man. It was awesome. The, one of the songs in that movement, love songs, sang it, which is one of the early Christian bands, Welcome back, welcome back to Jesus. And it, and it was just a ballad, really, just inviting us in. And, and that's the first ser- song I heard going in that night. And it's exactly what I needed to hear. Wow. And so everything was like that. So the parallels to today, now we're in a, an era that is more non absolute truth. But people still have a cultural conscience, most people do. And uh, but there's still the emptiness. There's still a huge chasm that exists between the older generation and the younger generation. Now we have these clever labels: Gen Z, Gen X, Millennials, and you know Boomers and Busters and all that kind of stuff. We didn't have any of those level, uh, labels back then. The same kind of dynamics exist. There's a separation, but uh, the language of the generation was used in the gospel to reach the generation. Mm. I, I believe that there are a lot of similarities between the two eras. And uh, I believe also that there is a tremendous openness to the gospel more than we realize. The problem is that Christians aren't sharing the gospel personally with other people and inviting them mm. into a relationship with Jesus like we did in the Jesus movement. Mm. Everybody did that then. Mm. Everybody was telling their neighbors and their friends and their relatives and anything that had a pulse was hearing the gospel. And, uh, and it was just common. Religious tracts or, or Christian tracts were, were done back then. And when they would print a tract that, that was hot you know, and, and used well, they would have to print millions of copies of these tracts. And people would buy the tracts. And they distribute the pack tracks, and they'd be sharing the gospel everywhere. You go to the pier in Newport Beach, and there would be other Christians there sharing the gospel. Wow. It was just something that was happening. Wow. And they're talking about Jesus. Yeah. And he was the subject. It wasn't religion. It wasn't obligations. It wasn't anything having to do with, with religion. It's not like where we live now in the South where you say, are you a Christian? And they'll say, I go to such and such a church. They identify yeah. with their church. It wasn't like that. Are you a Christian? I love Jesus. That would be their answer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you understand. It was all about Jesus. And so there was the symbol of the one way, the one, the one finger, the index finger would go up in the air. Speaking of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He was the one way. He opened up everything for us. Mm-hmm. 
our relationship with him. And it was really powerful. I love that, Dad. I mean, it's I could tell you're passionate I am. for that subject, and this whole thing could be a whole other podcast. I mean, it's such a great subject. You're pretty pretty uh, sharp for, for an old guy. You know, those are some great observations, and I think especially for me, it, uh, the, the portion that really spoke to me is uh, the, the concept about it, that we it was about Jesus. Those were the conversations that happened because I think a lot of times we get kind of drug in our modern time into these litmus testy kind of debates and questions. You know, can I? I would love to talk to you about Jesus, and it's immediately, well, what do you say about homosexuality or yeah. you know something like that? Yeah, and. I think even a lot of Christians fall prey to that. Like, well, yeah, I mean, someone's got to get all those things lined up first before I can tell them about Jesus. Yeah. And uh, so I just love that, like giving them yeah. the Lord and trusting that in the mess, he'll sort those things out in their lives if they can figure out who he is. He absolutely will, because our lives were messed up. They were big time messed up, on steroids messed up. Mm-hmm. And Jesus started fixing it. And we, we'd learned very early on, the whole purpose of this life is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. To be like him, is that's where it's at. Yeah. And to treat others like he treats us is where it's at. Yeah, so cool. So you, you know, get saved in that environment and in that time, God's stirring in your heart. He's confirming that you, he's given you a gift of teaching. You fall in love with his word. You're studying, growing, you develop this conviction that you need to leave Southern California and attempt to uh, start a church or, or a group or something somewhere outside of that area. So you, what did you do? Did you start praying? Did you get out a map? Did you just kind of like close your eyes and spin the globe and put your finger on something? Like how did you come to Monterey? So what happened was I was really, really praying and seeking the Lord about being able to have more opportunities to teach the word. I love to teach the Bible. And I had a message. It was the gospel of the grace of God. It was burning in my heart. And I wanted to share this with as many as I could. So I was praying about that. And the Lord spoke to me one time, one day in prayer. It was very powerful. And he said to me, is every man has received the gift, so let him minister the same as a good steward of the grace of God. So that's a quote from 1 Peter 4. I was aware of the quote. And then he, the Spirit began to speak to me. I'm going to give you increasing opportunities to teach the Bible. And it's going to become a stewardship to you to where you actually have some control over how much you want to teach. Because mm. it's, it's now a stewardship. Yeah. You've got to take care of it. Yeah. And so that's where I was. And then I went to a, a week-long shepherd school, a school of kind of ministry for uh, fledgling pastors. Yeah, it was out of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, it was, so it was safe. And I was in that class, and the, the guy that was heading up the school, for some reason, took an interest in me, and he wanted to get me placed somewhere as a pastor. So a couple of other cities were mentioned. I mean, there was interest in Flagstaff, Arizona. There was interest in Napa, California. And then there was a a couple that lived in Seaside that had been down to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. They loved, loved, loved it. And they just had a huge heart to see that happen here. So that became the invitation to come to the Monterey Peninsula, which 
like a lot of Southern Californians, we had no idea that this was a destination place. Yeah. First drove in here, we came in the back way, it was sand dunes, and you know, there was blue ocean, but it wasn't particularly pretty. And uh, not like Newport Beach or, or Balboa or whatever. Uh, so anyway, eventually, it didn't take long. You were, you know, in the oven. You were four months uh, mm -hmm. in, 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 you know. Gestation. From, from conception, yeah, gestation. We moved here with two Volkswagens, some furniture, and $125 in the bank. <laughs> and a place to stay temporarily until we got things settled. And, and so we, uh, and that was my expectation, was more opportunities to teach. I didn't know about planning a church. I knew I was called as a pastor church teacher, but I didn't know if I was going to actually start a church. We were so discouraged after the first year being here. I mean, there were some really good things that happened during that first year, more opportunities to teach, but it wasn't along the lines of what I really envisioned and thought was right. So during the, that year, I learned that oftentimes a vision that someone has in ministry, which is from the Lord, has to die and be placed upon the altar before the Lord will actually begin to do it. Mm. And so that's what happened to me. My vision died, and I was so discouraged, I was ready to go back to Southern California. And, but then I had a crisis of faith. If I went back to Southern California, then had I heard the Lord's voice to come to the Monterey Peninsula? And if I hadn't heard the Lord's, Lord's voice then, when had I heard the Lord's voice? So it was a bit of a crisis of faith, but it didn't take long. That commune that I've been part of in Boise, that whole system of 95 communal houses all over the country blew up. And there were a bunch of those ex-pastors from that communal system that were living in Pacific Grove, and they started a fellowship. Oh, wow. I found out about it, and I found out also that they were kind of aligning themselves with Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Chuck Smith, and so they wanted to become a Calvary Chapel. So I went over and checked it out to see what they were doing, because that's my turf. You know, that's what I'm here for. What are you guys doing here doing this? And I liked these guys. They had great hearts. You know, it was wonderful. I said, well, we're leaving. We're, we're going to be moving back to Southern California. But as long as we're here, I'll help however I can. And within probably a month, um, they invited me to, to be the pastor. They said, you, you seem like you know what you're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know about how to start a church. But it seems like you know. Wow. So we want you to be our pastor. Wow. Now, at, at this point in your life, I mean, you're... You, they're installing you as their pastor of this new, you know, group, yeah. this new church. So you were what? You were 45 years old or so. You were well established. I think I was 26. Yeah. Well, it was 1978. No, yeah, 79 when I actually first Sunday. So how old was I then? At 26. Yeah. 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 But back then in the Jesus movement, there were guys that were starting churches at 20, 21 years old. Yeah. And I love that. I just love that. And the, and the pastors that were over us were trusting us to do it. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Bible. You've got what you need, man. You've got the tools. Go do it. And so we did. Yeah, wasn't uh, Greg Laurie still in his teens? When he was he 19 was, yeah. when they asked him to, to take over this uh, Episcopal church type thing, just Bible amazing. study, in Riverside, California. What a beautiful time that must have <laughs> Must have been a lot of a lot of craziness, I'm sure, and yeah. like you said, you know, a lot of a lot of messed up lives, you know, that were being dealt with as people came to Jesus. But yeah. what a beautiful time to be part of the church. So, 
you uh, you guys got going, and and uh, I'm assuming at this point, you know, this young little fellowship is uh, meeting on Sundays and, and then other ancillary gatherings. And where were you meeting, and and what what did you what were you doing in the pulpit? Where you know, were you just <laughs> okay? So we we were meeting in the Seventh Day Adventist Church in Pacific Grove. Okay. Because they used it on Saturdays, and so it was available on Sundays. Yeah, there you go. So we were using that facility, and that was a great facility for us. And uh, when I started, I mean, it just took off, Nate. I, I, it was a work of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Very quickly after I became the pastor, it, it grew to where there wasn't enough room, really. Wow. And uh, so, that, so anyway, I got a call from Pastor Logan, who was the pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he was uh, kind of a Scottish guy. And we had a bunch of bikers, Hell's Angel-type bikers, only they were Christians, that were coming over to our Bible studies from Salinas. And so he calls me on the phone. And he says, I hear you've got some Hell's Angels in your church. And I said, no, they're not Hell's Angels, Pastor Logan. They're Heaven's Angels. They're Christians. They've gotten born again and radically saved. Okay. Well, they asked us to leave. I don't think they liked the idea of having a bunch of bikers come to the church. So we went over to the Pacific Grove Community Center after that and started meeting in that that facility. And that was fine. You know, it, it was not really perfect yeah. but it was it was great they were I very can remember hospitable that to us. One. Yeah, yeah you can remember that one yeah yeah, yeah. and so that, that was six or seven years of meeting there was uh, uh no we didn't we we met there for maybe a year and okay. then we moved over to the um Oldemeyer center and and seaside, seaside for a couple of years okay and so we were meeting there right after the Oldemeyer center had opened up it was a brand new facility so we grew in numbers mm-hmm. there and then we, uh, we, we felt like that wasn't a good fit for us to be in Seaside, so we moved back over to the Pacific Grove Community Center. The church started growing again, and you know that continued. And then we uh, eventually uh, started using the, uh, the facility at the Lighthouse. Well, no, we, we temporarily used Mayflower Church. Mm-hmm. And the we went to afternoon services. In Pacific Grove? It wasn't Presbyterian at that time. It was At that time, it was non-denominational. Okay. Uh, so we started using it in the afternoon. You know, D.L. Moody said, you know, don't have afternoon church services because the people are too full of beef and unbelief. But we did it anyway. And the, it, it was a wonderful thing, Nate, because the church went from maybe 250 people, and it was wonderful you know, shrinkage down to 70 or so <laughs> okay. after okay. a couple of years. We knew we needed to make a change. Yeah. and meet. So the Lighthouse Cinema in Pacific Grove on, uh, what's that? Uh, Grand, what is it? Even the street? Lighthouse, right? Lighthouse yeah. Yeah, Avenue. <laughs> Lighthouse Cinema, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we started meeting there, and I think we met there for a long time. And that was kind of a new building. It was a brand time, new building, yeah. brand new building, and they were willing to let us use it. So we, we had two services, and we had to be out. Uh, right about the time the popcorn started popping. Yeah. And so we could, you know, we could, we, we, we used four theaters. So we had one for youth ministry, one for overflow. I think we used maybe five, all of them. We used, we had children's ministry. No, some of the children's ministry was down at Mayflower. That's right. Yeah. So youth ministry and then a video monitor for the nursing mothers in one of the theaters and then our service. Yeah. And then two blocks away two blocks away was at Mayflower Church they had some 
part of their facility that they didn't need on Sunday morning and right. they rented it out to us they, for they kids us. ministry. So yeah. probably a situation the modern parent <clears throat> wouldn't get down with as yeah. much. Just drop my kid off with a stranger, take off three blocks away yeah. and go to church and trust that this walkie talkie system that they've got or arranged is going to alert me to any disaster. But that was the era they and did it. And I remember those days. I remember, um, you know, going to church in that time, you know, I was just a, you know, middle school and high school student during that yeah. kind of season. Cause I think it was seven or eight years that we met in that um, yeah. building. Yeah. And so, um, the, during the worship time of the main congregation, the back couple of rows, that's where me and my crew, all the, all the, um, teenagers would sit. And then, uh, I think most sun, most Sundays when the worship was over with, we'd get dismissed after yes. the worship time. Yeah. And then we'd go into the other theater or one of the other theaters and whoever was the youth pastor at that time would, yeah. you know, give us a Bible study and share with us. But I remember those days fondly, you know, yeah. the, after the service, everybody just hanging out. I mean, I'm a, your son, so pastor's kids, so just hang out forever and ever and ever, <laughs> yeah. and talking yeah. to people and, you know, yeah. just walking around downtown Pacific Grove, trying to find something to do. Um, yeah. But, you know, during that whole time, so, you you know, you, 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 you get going. I mean, you just took us pretty rapidly through, I mean, that was... 16 years or or 17 years of the church's life we were portable for 17 years yeah that's just amazing so did you have um any office space that was permanent was there any you know permanent place that you had that was yours yeah we moved around office wise and we had an office uh did we? Yeah, I had an office in the basement of Mayflower in their their annex building, you know, underneath the sanctuary. Okay. And so that was that was where we had our setup, and our tape lending library was in there, you know, cassette tape days, and our bookkeeper was there, and there were children's ministry classrooms. We had to do the whole renovation to make it suitable for us, and so on. It was it was rough i mean you know it was rough facility a little bit it was old and antiquated but we made it work and like you said people would go ahead and drop their kids off and they just trusted the leadership they just trusted what was going on they trusted the the environment of agape and commitment to the truth and and uh it was before the days of a lot of scandals in churches right and the other thing too is that really, I mean, we're talking about the very late seventies and then the eighties and yeah. the early nineties, the, especially on the peninsula, kind of that larger, bigger box, um, seeker sensitive, potentially, you know, that, that style of church hadn't really gone fully mainstream right. yet. And especially not here on the peninsula. I mean, it was a very significant church. It was on, very significant. In this community. Um, even though it was still portable and everything, you know, it was clear that God was doing a pretty neat thing. So it was. what were you teaching, you know, during that? Okay, so my very first teaching thing at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I started March 1st, 1979. Let's open up to Romans chapter 1, and we went through the book of Romans. Of course. Of course you went through the book of Romans. We had to, because yeah. there had to be a foundation yeah. Based upon the gospel and based upon the grace of God. Yeah. So let's go right where it's most clearly communicated in the in the book of Romans, which had begun to really change my own life. So yeah. 
that's where we started, and, and we just started teaching through the Bible, book by book. Yeah. I just, I, I think that's amazing that that's where you started because, you know, to me, uh, you know, I didn't really know that this was happening to me and I'm just kind of growing up in your home and, you know, I loved it. I had a great experience, you know, the Pacific Grove kid life, you know, and, and, uh, we had a good relationship. Uh, but as the church knows, and as I've talked about here and there, I wasn't always doing all that great with the Lord, but once the Lord really got a hold of my life and I surrendered to him and that happened for me at age 18, um, you know, I went away to Bible college and it's just so interesting to me that all the teachers that I really connected with, the classes that I really resonated with, it was Romans and Colossians yeah. and Ephesians. It was the Pauline, yeah. uh, positional Christianity, gospel oriented doctrines and teachings. And then, you know, I finished with all of that and came back here to start serving. And we got to have this cool time of, uh, seven years of an overlap where you were still the senior pastor and I was just, you know, up and coming and just doing lots of different things in the church. And so I got to just sit and be part of the congregation on, in lots of services. And lo and behold, I discovered that that thing that you were so lit up about is what God had been doing in my life too. Right, and I right. think, and I hope and pray that that still is coming out of the pulpit strongly now that, you know, the Romans oriented concepts in Christ, you know, perspectives and all of that. So I'm just so thankful that that was the yeah. kind of foundational element. So you're teaching through books of the Bible. Yeah. And, uh, I, you, we had a midweek service. You're teaching through books of the Bible. The Sunday service teaching through books of the Bible. The church is is growing. Bible college eventually. Yeah, you were doing all kinds of teaching. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the the church is portable. Were you wanting to have a facility the whole time that that you owned or that you called your own that you rented? Was it a hunt that you were on? Well, the thing was is that first of all, it seemed out of reach. I mean, we were a grassroots congregation, not wealthy. Yeah. We always had what we needed, but we were not wealthy. That was one dynamic. Another dynamic was we were content with what we had. Mm. We were content with setting up and content with meeting, and God was doing stuff. Mm. So we felt like we were a le legitimate congregation. It wasn't until year 12 that we started thinking about facilities because we were in the Lighthouse Cinema, and we thought... You know, it'd be nice to do something. So we reached out and we we acquired a lease um, situation in Sand City, and okay. it was a big old warehouse, huge huge warehouse, and we were renting that out, and we got the approval to do everything that we wanted to do to make it perfect for a church. But I wanted to check and see if this is the right move. Just one final check. So. Uh, several of us, Pastor Steve and I, Dave Phillips and myself, we drove down to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa to speak with Ta Pastor Chuck, who is like a genius with building and construction oh and vision goodness, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So we rolled out the plans for what we we're going to do in this warehouse to him. And it didn't take him more than a couple of minutes to look and see and say, what you're doing is you're building a building inside of a building. 
and you're paying this much per square foot to do it, and it's a triple net lease, and this is what you're going to be paying in five years. He had this all figured out within the space of a few minutes. He said, I encourage you to just find some land and just build something. Mm. Well, land on the Monterey Peninsula, Monterey Peninsula. Right? So, But uh, it turns out that Pastor Steve, who has a, had a background in, in the business world and especially in commercial and banking, uh, he rolled in those circles real well, and he was part of Pebble Beach Financial Corporation before he came on staff. He just knew all that stuff. So he, he connected with a broker named Ernie Lostrom, and Ernie found the piece of property that the church is on now for us. Wow. It was being sold by the Cambridge Diet people, and it was 6.01 acres, and they wanted 600-something thousand dollars for it. Well, we looked at the land and we thought the, uh, I don't know what it is, I guess it's the eastern side of the property was pretty unusable. We wouldn't be able to do anything with it. Yeah. So would kind of they the be... the tip of an arrowhead kind of shape. T- yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So we thought, could we subdivide this and, and only part purchase the usable part for ourselves? And so the, the seller was willing to do that. So we just had to have the city agree with us. We happen to have, fortunately, John Bridges on our board and part of our congregation, who's one of the premier land use attorneys in Monterey County. And so he, he, he helped us get it done. And we had a lot of different issues to get approvals, a lot of different things that had to be answered. Uh, but that was one of them, the, the subdivision thing. And so that was, that was workable. So then we made another offer. Uh, well, actually, he said, I'll, we'll sell you the 3.31 acres for $425,000. So tell me if I'm going too long in this answer. I can keep going. No, not at all. I love this. Okay, so $425,000. We agreed to that price, but we didn't have the money. We had maybe $60,000 in savings at that time. So we drove down to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, several of us, to meet with their board. And our request was for a loan for $425,000. Again, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Is Chuck like changing his phone number by this time? <laughs> <laughs> well, they just had a reputation of helping yeah. churches. They loved to see. They were a church planting They were enterprise. a church planting. Yeah, they were, yeah. And, but they relied heavily on the initiative of men like myself that went out. And once they saw that there was fruit and something going on, uh, then they saw something they, they wanted to invest in for the kingdom. So that's what happened here. So we went down and we talked to them and they looked at our financials and, and considered our requests and they turned us down. They said, you're in over your head. It's a little bit too big of an apple for you to try to bite. So we weren't, I don't know if we were discouraged. We just said, well, okay, that's the way it is. So we came back. And, and in the meantime, we kept working on plans because we had 3.31 acres. Maybe the Lord's going to provide another way to finance this. And as the time went on, the price of the property was going down because the seller was really motivated. He needed cash. And there were no other approved potential proje- projects out there that could actually buy this property and do what they needed to do. Ours was already on the fast track to approval. And so he was willing to sell it to us. Uh, ended up being $284,000 because we had $84,000 in the savings by then, but we needed another 200000 So Pastor Chuck heard about it, that we needed $200,000. I don't know how he heard about it, 
but he heard about it. And I was at a pastor's conference and he came up to me and he said, I have sold some assets recently and I would like to loan you uh, Calvary Chapel, Monterey Bay, uh, the money to buy that property out of his own pocket. This wasn't a board decision. Oh my goodness. And then eventually, maybe a month later, I can't remember the timing, we got word that the board was going to loan us $200,000. Yes. They heard what their pastor was about to do. <laughs> yeah. So that got it started. And, and so we were able to purchase the land for $284,000, which Monterey Peninsula, even being in 1994, yeah. that's insane. That's wow. an insane price. It was just the Lord. And so, you know, we had a note. And then, the, and then how do we pay for building it? You know, that right. was another thing. Well, you know, Steve Brazelton, again, background in banking, and uh, Steve Wotherspoon and his uh, wife, Kelly, part of our fellowship at that time. And he was, uh, as, as, I think he was the senior vice president of, of the Bank of Salinas. And so uh, he was willing to look into it. And so they loaned us, made a commitment to loan us the construction loan money. That would enable us to build it. And then we'd be taking draws according to how much we needed to pay certain contractors mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So we were able to build the building and get the use permit on the basis of the agreement for a construction loan. And then we had to have that turned into what's called a, a mini perm or a permanent loan. And so we were able to get that permanent loan with the Bank of Salinas because they saw what was going on with us. Mm -hmm. They saw the cash flow and so on, and it was a blessing. Uh, but leading up to that, Nate, we had a lot of areas that we needed to get approved. There was a water issue that was a serious water issue, and the only way we could get approved for water rights on this property for our congregation was to somehow convince the, the, the board, the water board, that they could transfer the amount of use we were using at Mayflower and the theater combined, they could transfer those rights to our use here. Oh, my goodness. And they did. Wow. And then there was the airport navigation board. This is a group of non-elected officials. They're appointed who supervise safety for the airport concerns. And so, obviously, we're, we built right, on, right behind the runway. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we needed the city council to overturn their vote. They voted against us, so we wouldn't have had a project. So the city council had to overturn that vote. So we had that vote, and we had several other votes. We had uh, five separate votes that had to take place to go in our favor with six council members uh, per vote. And all of those, out of 30 potential bo votes cast, 29 voted in our favor. Wow. wow. <laughs> and one of the issues was the traffic out on Highway 68. And uh, that was a big deal, but that ended up working out because they considered this an on off t off peak traffic time use. Our major use would be Sunday, Sunday morning. morning. So they said that's a great use. That's going to keep another developer from coming in. That's going to be using it during normal commute times wow. and clogging it up. So we had all those things in our favor, and it was just tremendous. There was one meeting where we were sitting there. And they were voting on some of these things. And there was a discussion. I, th I think it was the Planning Commission. I'm not sure if it was the Planning Commission or the City Council. But there was discussion among the members about having us do an environmental impact report. Mm. 
And an EIR at that time would have bogged us down into hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars of costs and would have taken months and years to, to build after we're done with all yeah, that a stuff. A true project killer. It was a project killer. So John Bridges was sitting next to me and I said, John, if they vote for an EIR, we're done. That's the end of our, our request. We're, we're back to, to... And I was fine with it. I mean, you know, whatever the Lord wanted to do. We came this far on the grace of God. We're going to keep going on the grace of God. We took a venture of faith, and the Lord has met us at every step. So he's not going to stop. He's just got something else for us if this isn't it. But, of course, it ended up being it. There, was, there were so many people that were involved in this whole thing. I mean, there was Steve with the financial side, Dave Phillips and the, and the planning, the the drawings, working with Andrew Asonio, that was another factor. We got a design build firm, the Asonio Corporation, to build it for us. They were willing to, even though they're a union company, they were willing to allow us to hire our own subs. If we knew a sub that was non-union, they were willing to have a non-union sub work under their, their general contractor uh, thing. I mean, there were so many things that worked out. So Andrew Asonio and his company were incredible and how they did this project. They built it so that if there was a flood, it wouldn't flood. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were sensitive to that having been at Mayflower Church. Uh, it was great. And then Dave Phillips, you know, like I said, he, he was the mastermind behind yeah. all this, working with Andrew Asonio and his architects. And Henry Runke, who was another architectural firm, helped draw up everything. Yeah. It was just amazing, you know, the, the people that were involved in this, in this thing. And then contractors would come out, like, for example, George Williams, a gifted contractor. But he said, I'll do the tile. You know, so yesterday during the service, I went into that bathroom. It's still And there, I was man. helping working on the tile. I, I helped all those bathrooms and everything, the laying of the tile and the foyer and all that. I was, I was helping do all that stuff. I loved it. It was fun. And uh, it's still there. Yeah. It's still there. And, you know, all these contributions from people, it was such a team effort. It was amazing, really. And, you know, I'll close it by saying one thing. You know, so we occupy, and every once in a while we'd see people driving around our parking lot, either in the late evening or in the early morning. And you know who they were? They were members of the city council or planning commission who were coming to admire the thing that they had approved. Wow. This was a thing to them. Wow. <laughs> and you guys have just gone, you know, the next step. I mean, in the other further development, more buildings and and uh, the way the the uh, area out there, the outdoor amphitheater is being used and all of that is beautiful. The sanctuary is the place is the shape it is because there was an oak tree. Yeah, I love this story. A, I mean, I hate this story. But. I know. It was a sacred oak tree. And, you know, trees back then, I mean, it was like a, a critical sin to cut down a tree. And uh, so we had to shape the sanctuary, which was originally going to be the fe just the fellowship hall, in, a, in, the, in the shape being longer rather than wider, which is our preference, mm -hmm. because of that oak tree. Wow. It had to stay there. And the road coming in, the long and winding road is what I always called it. It was it's the shape it is because there were trees that they didn't want cut down. Wow. Yeah, so we complied. We were compliant, which yeah. is not my nature, but we were compliant on all those things. And that's how that's how things happened the way they did. Yeah. 
And so the, the Herald, the Monterey uh, Peninsula Herald, they wanted to do a story, and it was going to be a, a front-page story on one of the sections of the paper on this. And, of course, they wanted to interview me. The first question the reporter asked me says, so after all these years, you know, it's been how many years, uh, you know, since we actually, so 17, 17, year 17, we actually moved in. So after all these years, what's it like to ha finally have your dream fulfilled? Oh, man, you set it up for you. She did. And I said, well, to, to, to help you understand, this has not been my dream. Amen. This is a facility. And we've always called it a facility because it facilitates something. It facilitates something that God wants to do in the hearts of his people when we gather. It's a building. It's not the church. And this isn't our dream. We've been doing this for 17 years before we came into this facility. But this is going to help us do it on a bigger scale and a different kind of a scale because of the visibility and all that. And so I don't know, I can't remember if that got put in the article or not, but that was the truth. It wasn't our dream. And we're just so grateful that he gave us something beautiful. I had for years thought that with the convergence of all the cities on the peninsula, the best place for a church would be right here. Mm -hmm. And I had prayed on numerous occasions, Lord, if you could open up a door. But it wasn't really a prayer of faith because, I mean... If the Lord should open up windows in heaven, could such a thing be? Well, he did open up windows of heaven, and such a thing was. Wow. <laughs> you were, yesterday we were at a little gathering, and you were talking with uh, one of the guys uh, who you mentioned, Dave Phillips. And uh, gosh, so many of those names are still, you know, helping us uh, today. Yeah. Uh, Dave Phillips has a son named Sam, and Sam... Yeah works for the Asonio uh, Corporation, and uh, Sam is helping me with uh, currently designing a possible next stage for us as a fellowship. Uh, one of the architects he's using is Henry Runke. Ah, and, really? I didn't know uh, yeah, that. So That's he amazing. says hello. Uh, John Bridges, who has recently uh, retired from uh, full practice, uh, one of his last things that he did was help us with some permitting issues for that potential project. So it's just really neat to, to see that, to hear that. I want to talk about yeah. one of the meetings where John, he represented us before all these meetings, but the, the, the one where the, the most important votes were going to occur, John was our spokesman. And we had a huge turnout from the church, and I think some people from the community as well that were in favor of our project, and it filled the entire city council chambers, overflow capacity type thing. And John spoke up, and <laughs> it's going to make me cry. It was a moment that is frozen in time in my mind. It was like a church service, Nate. It was unbelievable. The Spirit of God came upon John Bridges, and he spoke with such clarity, and he gave them every reason to vote yes. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker's talking to all these council members and going, you will vote yes for every one of these requests. You will vote yes. But he gave them the reason to do it, and they were so happy to vote yes for us. They were congratulating us after the meeting, but 
the spirit, I give credit to the spirit of God and I give credit to John to be a willing vessel in that moment and throughout the process. Uh, it was a very supernatural thing. And I think that, uh, you know, that meeting, it was as powerful a personal corporate experience as I'd ever had in the church. Wow. It was really something. Church was happening that day. It was happening. Church was at the city council chambers <laughs> in Monterey. Oh, man, those were good times. So beautiful. Yeah. Well, Dad, I... You know, one of the my hopes, you know, in talking with you, because there's just a million things that we could talk about, and I'm yeah. sure I'll reach out to you in the future to say, hey, can I bend your ear about this or that for this Jesus Famous podcast? But my two main hopes were, you know, I really wanted, uh, because I, I wanted people to hear the origin story of the church um, for two reasons. I, I wanted to reflect on... The fact that, though, of course, we look different because this is this is 2021 or 22 at the point of this recording, mm-hmm. um, and the church began in 1979. So, yeah. of course, it has a different look and feel and all of that. But I wanted people to hear that a lot of those same core, you know, values and ministry perspectives and philosophies they remain today. Yeah, and then. As I've said to our church in the past, and you know, these last couple of years, we've had our minds, you know, we've had to deal with some other stuff. Sure. But before, you know, 2020 hit us all so hard, we were talking to the church about potential expansion and some avenues that we were considering and wanting mm-hmm. to pursue. I actually told them this story about that dumb tree out there, mm-hmm. you know, which since that time has died mm-hmm. and it's gone, you know, but that that tree was part of the reason why the sanctuary is as small as it is yep. and narrow as it is. But what I shared with them back then was that I think God left that tree there and I think he left it there for us hmm. because he had stuff he wanted us to do and steps of faith that he wanted a future <clears throat> iteration right. and generation of this church to take. So That's I was true. really hoping that, you know, the stories that you would tell might, electrify our faith a little bit, you know, to help us. I can say this, Nate, you know, and uh, I, I, I believed this at the time and I believe it more strongly now than I did even at the time. But when I stepped aside in 2006, Mm -hmm. in February, 2006 to, and I started doing other things, you know, appointment ministries and so on. um, You know, Roger Scalise came in behind me mm-hmm. and he ended up being a transitional pastor and he's the one that passed the church over to you and he worked with you in that last year so that you uh, he whatever he could do to help you be ready he did it mm-hmm. in the Roger Scalise manner of doing things accelerated accelerated yeah and so I believed then and you remember sitting in, in those staff meetings where I said you know what I think our church is going to need to somehow get younger uh, because uh, we're going to have to be able to reach the next generation. And as I look back on it, what God called me to do as the pioneer at, with the team of pioneers that were with me, which were awesome, um, we were given grace to do that. But I don't think I could have taken the church any further hmm. 
It may have grown numerically, but I don't think I could have taken the church any any further in terms of the culture of leadership, in the church of opportunities, in the church of honing vision down to where it's very understandable, like you've made it understandable here. I think you're you're the guy for that. And I, I believe that then. I believe it now more than I've ever believed it before. And you... Uh, one of your first hires, and maybe your first hire was to hire Jeff Buck, mm-hmm. which was a brilliant move. You know, somebody with great experience and wisdom and a calm demeanor. And all of these things, you've created a culture. Uh, the Lord has created a culture through your leadership that is sustainable and gives people, well, it's like there's a, a lyric of a Josh Garrels song. Walls come down, um, when there's a peaceful sound, mm. lonely, lonely souls hang around. Mm. That's what's happening here. The walls for people are coming down. They're willing to go into life groups. They're willing to risk vulnerability. They're willing to get connected with each other because there's a peaceful sound here. Mm. There's nothing people have to worry about when they come to church here. Mm. Uh, there's nothing out of order. There's nothing that you know, needs to be fixed. There's nothing aggravating, you know, there's nothing that is unsafe. It's all safe. It's all, it's really, it's, it's casual, it's organic, but it's organized. Mm -hmm. And every time you come to Calvary Monterey, you can count on vertical worship. You can count on hearing the word and hearing the Lord speak to you through the word, and you can count on the possibility of great horizontal relationships. And that is, that all is what we did too. We did it too. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the thing that's transferable, but you've taken the, the whole leadership style and, and into a much more current contemporary approach. And, um, so the next generation is being reached. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just thrilled. I think about this and I'm proud of you for submitting to the Lord, uh, you know, whew. they're going to think that I'm like this all the time, but I just, you know, this is near to my heart. Yeah. You know, I'm proud of you for submitting to the Lord in your teaching gift. You know the lane you're supposed to be in and you stay in the lane and that's awesome. And um, you're, you're a leader beyond the walls of Calvary Monterey and so on and so forth. But your staff. Uh, it's kind of like the Queen of, Sheba, Queen of Sheba when she visited Solomon and everything that was going on there. There was no breath left in her. Mm. You know, the Lord is in this place. Something's going on. And I still feel that. It's, it's, uh, it, it's good. So the foundation is there. And that's more important than the building. It's more important than the structures that are yet to be built. And, Amen. you know, that's the thing that has to, has to continue. And I think it will. Because what the Lord begins, he continues. He who hath begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. Amen. I believe that. Dad, I want to end it right there. I I almost just wanted to drop the mic when you said all of that. But uh, I do want to have people have a chance to be able to to, uh, know a little bit about what you're doing now. Because I get asked every single week, you know, hey, how's your dad? What's he he up to? What's he doing? You know, you've moved around a little bit. So, you know, it's like. Yeah. Oh, he's in East Texas now. Yeah, I thought he was in Santa Cruz. I yeah. thought he was in Idaho. I thought he was, you know. So yeah, you mentioned Point Main Ministries a little bit earlier. So yeah. give everybody a snapshot of what. Okay, your so after doing now. after I step down from CCMB, I call it step aside because mm-hmm. it's a lateral move. I'm still a pastor teacher, no matter what I do. 
I was really seeking the Lord about it. I didn't know how how valid I would be or how essential, not essential, but how, you know, if the, what, what the role was going to be yeah. in moving forward. And, uh, and the Lord really began to speak to me really queer, clearly, and it had to do with my calling and stuff I'd have already, I've already done. I've, I've worked with pastors, worked as an encourager. I think my, my strong gift is the gift of encouragement, probably, mm-hmm. on a personal level. And so I've been doing that for a long time. And so it didn't take long for me to, to have a vision formed in my mind. There are a lot of pastors who need relational help and support from somebody who's, who's, who knows what it's like and so on. And I think that the single greatest predictor of the health of a church, if you had to just name one, mm-hmm. would be the health of the senior pastor. So we started Poimain Ministries uh, to strengthen pastors, to strengthen churches. And now there are 13 pastoral couples, including my wife Sherry and I, on our team. And, and the Lord is using this group to make a huge difference. And it's, it's been very powerful. The churches that have been helped, the transitions that have occurred, the changing of vision into a more biblical vision, uh, the encouragement of smaller churches to continue to grow no matter what their numerical size is. Mm-hmm. You know, all this kind of stuff has happened now since 2008 when we formed as a corporation. Yeah. And so that's what we're, that's the main thing that, yeah. that I'm doing is, is the appointment ministries. I'm the director. They all defer to me as sort of their, their captain slash quarterback. And I love that role. It's really, really a wonderful thing to be able to do. So I'm doing that. And we, like you said, we have moved around an awful lot. Um, you know, going backwards in the early formation, Book of Romans days, I learned early on that my identity is not in the ministry. Amen. I mean, I am a pastor teacher. Jesus made me to be that, and he wants me to fulfill that role in relationship to the church. But that's not my identity. My identity is as a believer, as a as a child of God in Christ. So I, I'm really secure in that. So the amount of output doesn't affect the way I know the Lord, the Father, sees me. Mm-hmm. And this is true of every believer. Everybody that's watching this can understand your identity isn't in how many zeros there are beyond behind your income or or what kind of house you live in or what kind of job you have or how many children you have as none of that your identity is who you are in Christ that is the essential core of your identity just like it was for Jesus this is my son in whom I'm well pleased that's what the father said of Jesus his core identity was as a son of the eternal father and everything flowed from that for him. And everything flows from that for me, too. So I didn't have any kind of an issue of, you know, stepping aside from the church. It was a challenge because I love it here. And I love the church. And I love the people. And there's hundreds, thousands of people that have come through here. And this is a unique area, as you know. I mean, people come in and then they, they cycle back out. They're maybe military. Maybe they're short-term contract work with some organization. Maybe they can't afford it anymore. <laughs> maybe the prospect of selling their house and making bank and moving to a cheaper place <laughs> appeals to them. There's a lot of overflow. We've, the church has probably had seven different whole congregations for the most part over the years. I'm just guessing mm-hmm. that the number. But we had that dynamic, and that's going to 
going to continue to happen because it's the nature of the beast here on the Monterey Peninsula. But the core stuff that has always happened here, vertical and horizontal, is continuing to happen, and it will. We pray that today's discussion has blessed you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and share so we can continue to reach people and make Jesus famous in our lives and the lives around us. Until next time, God bless.